Please be seated. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to tra- turn to Acts 9. We're going to look at Acts 9, verses 1 to 18. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, as we continue to look at the book of Acts and learn from this biblical narrative, individuals who have gone before us, some godly and some not, we pray that we might imitate the godly and shun the actions and attitudes, the thoughts and motives of the ungodly. We ask, Father, that we might be changed by your inspired and errant word. Impact us, change us, transform us. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. In Richard Connell's book, The Most Dangerous Game, we are introduced to a fictitious character named Sanger Rainsford. Now, Sanger is a world-class hunter. He goes all over the world hunting big game. On one particular voyage on his yacht, heading down to South America, somehow he falls off of his yacht and it sails away. He happens to be a very good swimmer and so he sees a foreboding island and he swims towards it. All through the night he swims and he finally arrives on the shore. He knows that the island is inhabited. He knows it because he's heard gunshots throughout the night. To his amazement, when the sun rises, he sees a palatial chateau that happens to be owned by a Russian businessman named General Zaroff. He can't believe his good fortune. General Zaroff is a hunter. Sanger is a hunter. They reminisce about big game hunting. He's invited to dinner that night. And in the course of the conversation, General Zoroff said, I've started hunting a new species. It's unlike any other species I've ever hunted. It's magnificent. I won't go back to what I've hunted before. Sanger is interested. He said, tell me about it. General Zoroff said, well, what I'm looking for is someone that can match wits with me. Someone who is brave, someone who can reason. Sanger is confused. There's no species like that, he replied. Ah, said the general, you're wrong. There is one species like that. Sanger said, you're kidding. That's a grisly joke. Don't joke like that. He said, I'm not joking. And Sanger realizes that he, the hunter, is about to be the hunted. That's today's text. That's Acts chapter 9. The hunter is Saul Paul. He has been going through Israel, outside of Israel. Now to Damascus, he's come and gone. And he is hunting. He has papers from the highest of authorities, not only from the Sanhedrin, but it's been signed off by the Roman Empire. 
And he is hunting followers of the way. The way is Jesus Christ. And he has imprisoned some. He has beaten others. We know from Acts chapter 7, he presided over the murder of another, Stephen. And the hunter sees the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. His life is transformed. His life is changed. And the hunter becomes the hunter. So much so that not only will he be hunted, but he will be persecuted in many ways for his faith. God himself will say in verse 16, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Let me pick up in the text and let's read verses 1 and 2 of Acts chapter 9. But Saul, remember Saul is his Jewish name. When he becomes a Christian, about 12 years later, he will become the missionary to the Gentiles. So he'll take a Roman name, Paul. He'll be Saul for about the first decade plus of his Christian walk, but then he'll be Paul. Saul, Paul, same guy, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. He asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, and remember Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Followers of the way are those individuals then and today who recognize that we are sinners in need of a Savior who have by faith believed in Christ. Ask them forgive us of our sin to become our Savior and our Lord. Those are followers of the way. That any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. That's what's going on in our text. In verses 1 and 2, we find Saul Paul, and he's breathing out murderous threats. He's not only binding people up, he's not only taking them back, but he wants them to stand trial and be put to death. Now you might ask, and it would be a good question, how in the Roman Empire is it possible for a Jew to arrest fellow Jews? Well, the answer actually comes from the Apocrypha. Now, the Apocrypha is not biblical text, but a lot of it is historical text. And in 1 Maccabees, which was written about 150 years prior to this event, we read in 1 Maccabees 15, 15, that the high priest had gone to Rome and got permission from Rome to send out their own adversaries of the way, to send out adversaries of anyone who they deemed to be a heretic, which again would be the way in the time of Saul Paul, and they could arrest them, they could extradite them, they could actually put them to death. So there is no doubt under the authority of 1 Maccabees 15, 15, how Paul, Saul, is doing what he's doing. Rome had given permission 150 years earlier to the high priest that was still being used by the high priest and those he sends out his advocates to take care of his adversaries. Now understand that Saul, Paul, thinks he is doing right. He is a Jew's Jew. Everything about being a Jew, he is. 
He was. He is sold out in every way. Let me read from Philippians 3, verses 5 and 6. It says this, circumcised on the eighth day. That would be kosher. That is, his parents are kosher. They didn't circumcise him on the seventh day or the ninth day or sometime in the first few weeks. They circumcised him on the eighth day because that was Jewish law. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. There are 12 tribes, later on 13 tribes, and then even 14 because of divisions. But the two tribes that lead everything are Judah and Benjamin. So he's of the right tribal background. A Hebrew of Hebrews. Most Jews at this point have been Hellenized. That is, they were Greek speakers. They could no longer communicate in Hebrew. They could no longer read the sacred text in Hebrew. They needed the Septuagint, the Greek Bible, not Saul Paul. He could actually read the original Hebrew. As to the law of Pharisee, there are only 6,000 Pharisees at any given time. They are lay leaders. They hold the 613 Old Testament Levitical laws, very sacred. They hold them uh, flawlessly. He's one of them. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, blameless under the law. That is this individual. In fact, he goes on in Acts 22.3 to say, under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained under the law of God. Now we have to understand in Jewish history, there are really five famous rabbis. Some would argue more, but I'm going to argue for five. There's Ben Yehuda. He is the redactor of the Mishnah. There is Saul Paul. There's Jesus. There's the conservative Shammai. And there's the liberal Hillel. If you have the opportunity to study under any of those five, you have whatever school you think is the most advanced in the world. I don't know what school you would point to. Cambridge, Oxford, Harvard, Stanford. I don't know what you would say. University of Wisconsin. One of these, you would say one of them and, and Gamaliel is the grandson of Hillel. If there's a sixth, that's who Saul Paul studied under. And his grandfather was one of the five. So he has the most advanced Jewish education imaginable. And Judaism is uncompromisingly monotheistic, then and now. And so from Saul's point of view, not understanding the Trinity, not understanding that God is one in three persons, he sees this, this belief in the way as polytheistic. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's two gods too many for a monotheistic Jew. And he doesn't understand that God is one and three persons. He will understand that. He doesn't yet. And so he believes with all of his heart he is doing what is right. He is a zealot. A zealot is someone who is committed to a line of reasoning, a line of action. Zealots are loud. They're forceful. They're powerful. And sometimes they're wrong. This zealot at this point was wrong. 
He hadn't yet understood what Jesus will say in Acts 16, 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He will believe that in a few hours from this text. But he has not yet. Saul, Paul was sincere. But he was sincerely wrong. But God. But God. In his sovereign choosing and grace will meet Saul Paul on the road to Damascus and he will allow Saul Paul, Paul will put it this way, as one abnormally born. In other words, Jesus has already resurrected. He's already ascended. He comes back and Saul Paul sees him, which by the way is why Saul Paul can be an apostle. We have no apostles today. You have to have seen the risen Christ to be an apostle. There were 15 of them, and then Saul Paul, because Jesus came back, and he got to see Jesus, and he becomes an apostle. That was the sovereign grace. That was the, the mercy of God for this utterly lost man. Let's read about it. I want to go back to uh, Acts chapter 9, and now I'm going to read verses 3 to 16. Acts 9, starting in verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Just a comment. How would you like to be Ananias at this moment? God tapping your shoulder to go out and meet the butcher of Jerusalem. This is a very uncomfortable spot to be in. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. That's kind of reminiscent of Isaiah 6, right? Here I am, Lord, send me. That's Ananias. That's you. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, not Iscariot, Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard about many or from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Well, from this text, we're going to make a few observations. The first is in verse 4. And in verse 4, Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, I want to step back and think about that for a moment. I think on one level, we could say, well, 
Saul, Paul really wasn't doing anything to Jesus. He was doing something to those who followed Jesus, but not to Jesus. But that's not how the text reads. It says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And what I've lifted from the text in my mind is this. If you're a parent, or you're a grandparent, or a great-grandparent, you might get this. When someone unfairly attacks your child, your grandchild, your great-grandchild, it's like it's an attack on you. In fact, you would almost wish in almost every circumstance that it was actually an attack on you rather than your child or grandchild or great-grandchild because it's more painful that it's this precious child than yourself. And that's what Jesus is saying. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You're attacking my children, and when you attack my children, you are attacking me. And if that's true, that has implications for how we treat one another. If that's true, that has implications about slandering or gossiping against one another. If that's true, that is implications of how we serve one another, love one another, forgive one another. Because what we have here is Jesus saying to Saul, you have attacked my people, and by attacking my people, you have attacked me. And the thought is unthinkable that we would attack the Lord Jesus. And yet by implication of verse 4, when we attack his children, we attack him as well. Notice also, moving on, verse 6, that what is expected of a child of God is obedience. Verse 6 says, Saul, rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And Saul obeys. Now, I suspect at this point, someone might push back and say, well, yeah, I'm sure he is obeying right now. Uh, Jesus has just told him that you've attacked the personhood of the second person of the Trinity, that's not good. And you're blind. And so right now, of course, Saul Paul is amiable. Whatever God says, he's going to do. And that would be a reasonable pushback, except that we see the rest of his life. It's not just at this moment, but it's for several decades until his death in AD 66 as a martyr under the emperor, buried at the church of Paul outside the wall in Rome, up until that point, from here until there, Saul Paul dedicates his life to the Lord. He'll be stoned. He'll be beaten with rods. He'll be beaten with a whip. He will have a viper bite him. He'll be shipwrecked. He'll be a day and night at the sea. He'll have to be let over a city wall. He'll have to run for his life. He'll have to flee. He will go on three immense missionary journeys. The first missionary journey, and we're going to see them all through the book of Acts. The first missionary journey, I think is about a year and a half. Actually, I think it's probably about a year and eight or nine months. And uh, he'll travel 1,600 miles. The second missionary journey is certainly over two years. And he'll travel 3,000 miles. The third missionary journey is just a little bit longer than that. And he'll travel 
3,300 miles. Each time he'll go through the glacier region filled with marauders and malaria. And then in his defense for himself before the emperor, he'll travel 2,250 miles and be shipwrecked before he faces the emperor and ends up martyred. During this period of time, he will plant 60 known churches or at least interact with 60 known churches. According to 2 Peter 1.21, the Holy Spirit will carry him along and he will be the human author along with the divine author, God's Spirit, of 13 books of Holy Scripture. He will impact this world for generations to come. And when God says go, he goes. He understands that what we name God claims. We get it backwards, right? We say claim it, name it, and God will deliver it. No, no. We name it, God claims it as his own. Our finances, our property, our time, our recreation, our pursuits, our job, our family, God claims all of it as his own. And Paul gives us a model at the moment in which he comes to Christ. And that model is when God says go, he goes. That's what a Damascus Road experience really is. A Damascus Road experience is when you and I come to the end of ourselves, recognize that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and by faith believe in Christ. Now, I doubt any of our Damascus Road experiences are as remarkable as this one. He saw the risen Christ. He's suddenly blinded. He ends up on this street called Straight in this house by Judas and begins to pray. And God says, a man named Ananias is going to come to you. I doubt that our experiences are quite that dramatic. And yet it's always the same. You see, God does not just save us from damnation. He saves us for service. Think about Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. For by grace, what we can't do on our own, for by grace you are saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works. So none of us could boast. What's the next verse? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Why? For good works. It doesn't say we are created in Christ Jesus to keep us out of hell. That's true. It doesn't say we are created in Christ Jesus that the Holy Spirit enters us. That also is true. It doesn't say we are created in Christ Jesus so that we can have a future and a hope, which is also true. But it says we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's why God creates us in Christ Jesus. Let me read verses 15 and 16 again. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. God creates us in Christ Jesus for lots of reasons. 
But according to verse 10 of Ephesians 2, one of those reasons is that we will do good works. May there not be an unemployment problem in the church of Jesus Christ. God has given us a commission, both in the church and outside the church, to do good works. At the moment in which we come to Christ, according to Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 7, 12 and 14, and Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4, according to all those passages, at the moment in which you and I come to Christ, he gives us one or more spiritual gifts to bring glory to his name and to build up the body of Christ. So there never should be an unemployment problem because we know that we have been gifted. Some have been gifted with wisdom and discernment. And you are probably individuals who, individuals go to you for wisdom and understanding. And you have an informal counseling ministry. Well done, good and faithful servant. Some are given gifts of ministry and helps. And you just kind of see individuals in the body with need or things that need to be done. And you go without being asked because God has gifted you that way. And you use that gift. Well done, good and faithful servant. Some are given gifts of, of leading in worship. We've seen it this morning and in the back with pro presenter and the lights and the sound. And, and they've led us into the, the presence of God using the gifts that God has entrusted to them. Well done, good and faithful servant. And we could go on and on and on. Paul used the gifts entrusted to him, as many of you do. Well done. And if we're not using those gifts, may we begin to use them because God saved us at least for one reason, that we might do good works for his glory. But not only is Paul called to serve, but he's also called to suffer. We don't really like that word, but that's what he says. Verse 16, he will see how much he will suffer for my name. That's the cause of Christ sometimes. The cause of Christ sometimes is to suffer. We're told to turn the other cheek and to forgive those we don't want to forgive and to love the unlovely and God forbid maybe even to be kind to somebody of a different political persuasion. We are called to suffer for the name of Christ. It doesn't mean we give up our convictions. It doesn't mean we give up what God has put on our hearts to do or say but it does mean how we do it and how we say it reflects Christ-like love. We're called sometimes to suffer. Paul was called to suffer. The eighth beatitude, the beatitude nobody wants, Matthew 5.10 says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Powerful verses. And yet you and I are sometimes called to suffer for the sake of the kingdom. But not only to serve, not only to suffer, but we've given a lot more in the last two verses. Let me read again from Acts chapter 9. Let me read verses 17 and 18. They're just filled with application. 
So Ananias departed because God told him to go. Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. That's a powerful couple verses. As I thought about them, I thought about a 12-year-old boy. He lived in a village. He had worked hard all day. It had been a hot day, a long day. He was hungry. He was tired. He was dirty. He came home, and his aged dad said, Oh, I've got this package. It's got to go to the village. I know you've worked hard all day, but I don't feel up to it today. Can you just take this package for me? And immediately, the 12-year-old thought about arguing, but he thought, no. If I argue my dad, who's not doing well, he'll go do it himself. And so he grabbed the package and started to leave, and his father put his hand on his shoulder. He said, son, you have always been a good boy to me, always. And with that, the young boy left, made haste, delivered the package, came back. And when he arrived, there were people outside of his house, and Someone came up to him with tears in his eyes and said, while you're away, your father passed away. Whatever your dad said to you before you left, those were the last words that we know he uttered. And that young boy grew up, very successful man. At the end of his life, he said, I'm an old man now. And I thank God over and over again that the last words I heard my father say is that you are a good boy. That's what God desires to say to you. You're a good girl. You're a good boy, a good woman, a good man. You have served me well. John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. That was Ananias. So if verse 17, it starts out, Ananias departed. I want us to think about that for a moment. Ananias departed. Paul traveled, Saul Paul, 150 miles by foot each way from Jerusalem to Damascus. Why? To murder, to imprison, and to destroy. And now, Ananias is being sent to this guy? Is it not at least possible, if not likely, that Ananias knows a woman whose husband is in prison because of Saul Paul? Is it not likely, if not almost certain, that he knows of a child who is an orphan? Because Saul Paul murdered that child's parents. And yet God comes to him and says, Ananias, go to the street called Straight, to this house owned by Judas. I've got this man there who is going to be my spokesman to Gentiles, to kings, and to the nation of Israel. I want you to go there, and I want you to begin the commissioning process. And Ananias goes, that's a hard command. 
And the Bible is filled with really hard commands, especially in the day and age we live. God says that intimacy is only between a husband and wife, a man and a woman in a marriage relationship. You can get that in Genesis 2 and Malachi 2, the first and last book of the Old Testament. You can get it in Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 6. You can find it all over Scripture. God never changed his mind. God says that he creates pronouns and genders. Genesis 1:27, male and female, I created them. Male and female, I made them. That's not what we hear today, but it's what God's word says. The Bible is filled with all sorts of difficult commands and instructions and things we are told to believe. And we have to decide, are we going to be like Ananias faced with a very difficult command and yet he obeyed? Or do we pick and choose what we want to do based on whether we might get blowback from our society or it just is inconvenient to our lives. Second, I think the conversion of Saul Paul is incredibly encouraging. Here we have the butcher of Jerusalem, and yet he comes to a saving knowledge of Christ. And some of you are married to an obstinate spouse. Some of you have an obstinate parent or child or sibling or coworker or friend. And you've shared the gospel, and you've modeled Christ's likeness, and you've prayed. And I think the text would say, continue at the right times to share the gospel, continue to model, and continue to pray, because if God sovereignly reaches someone like Saul Paul, he can reach anyone, and he could reach your loved one. And so I find the text to be incredibly encouraging for those individuals in our lives that do not know Jesus. Third, did you ever notice verse 17? Brother Saul. Is that what you would have called him? Is that what you would have called Saul as you walked into the room? Brother Saul? I don't think that's what would have come to my mind. How the angels must have rejoiced. Again, we're talking about a a man that had murdered. We know that. Galatians and Acts 7 both make it clear that he had killed followers of Christ. He had imprisoned followers of Christ. He had ravaged That's the biblical word used. He had ravaged the church of Jesus Christ. And Ananias walked in and he said, Brother Saul. And I wonder, I wonder who in our lives who has been redeemed by faith in the blood of Jesus Christ that we're holding a grudge, anger, bitterness towards that might need to hear brother, sister, and might need to hear a hand of forgiveness extended 
Can you imagine walking into the room and saying, Brother Saul? Fourth, verse 18, something like scales fell from his eyes. I don't know what that is. I believe it's physiological, but I also believe it's mental. He had had years of hatred and animosity and bitterness towards Christ followers. And I don't think in a moment, I think the physical scales fell. I think it probably takes a little bit of time for some of those emotional scales to begin to fall. But he began to change his understanding of who Christ's followers were and are. And that's what God calls us to do as well. Fifth, after coming to Christ, he's immediately baptized. How convenient for a baptismal day, isn't it? Uh, I think between the four campuses, uh, we had 40. I think we have 37 that will be baptized. Well, that's an exciting thing. It's an exciting thing because it's a public declaration of what God has internally done, saved us by faith through Christ. And then we are publicly baptized, declaring to others that we belong to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Paul did that. And finally, I want to learn to see people as God does. He says he is a chosen instrument of mine. <laughs> I don't think I would have viewed Saul Paul as a chosen instrument of anyone, not at that moment, but God saw not only what he was, but what he would be. He doesn't see us just what we are, but what we will be, what he's molding us and shaping us. He wants us to be chosen instruments of his. What a great God, a gracious God that you and I serve. Let's pray. Father God, uh, I thank you for the book of Acts. So much that I can learn from, that I can imitate, that I need to apply to my life. And it's probably not just me, it might be others. And so Father, help us not to be hearers of the word only, but doers as well, and to take your text and begin to live it out, empowered by your spirit, incrementally becoming more and more of what you desire. We ask this, O oh Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen.